0: Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 116th episode of the PJ Archive. It's a phone interview I did with the American singer, songwriter, producer, music executive and actor, Tony Orlando. He's best known from the pop group Tony Orlando and Dawn, alongside Telma Hopkins and Joyce Vincent Wilson. Their classic hits from the 1970s included Candida, Knock Three Times, and, of course, Tie a Yellow Ribbon, Round the Old Oak Tree. In this interview in 2004, we talked through Tony's remarkable life and career.
1: Tony, were you from a musical family? Yeah, my, my grandfather, my mother's father, was a musician and a big influence on me, and he was a head of the local 802 union for Latin musicians in New York and played in Dezion as his orchestra, his first trumpet. And he opened up um, many of the famous clubs in New York City, including the Coconut Grove, the original Coconut Grove. Yeah, he was a big influence on me.
0: So even though you came from a New York City slum, you still had a possibility of getting somewhere because of your connection?
1: Uh, not because of my connection, as much as I was always a believer that dreams come true and just knew. in 19, I was nine years old. I saw a movie called uh, Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. And uh, I was always the one kid in the area of my neighborhood that would come home with one wet left foot because I was always copying that scene where he would be in the rain swinging around lampposts. <laughs> and I knew that from that day on, you know, that I was going to be... In show business. I mean, there's just no doubt in my mind. I mean, I just never had a doubt. I always saw myself as a performer. And it was interesting, you know, I never really cared about being a star or anything like that. All I cared about was working in show business. I wouldn't have cared if I pulled the curtain. Did you ever get to meet Gene Kelly and explain I did. to him? I met Gene Kelly. Sinatra took me to a friar's roast in honor of Gene Kelly. It wasn't a roast in which you were. You know, making fun. It was a roast, one of the serious roasts where you were honoring this man. And I had told Sinatra about this feeling I had about Gene Kelly. And he said, well, you know what? I want you to come on the dais. Never forget it. And sure enough, I'm lining up on this list of people that, you know, Frank would be on the microphone in another room, the green room, kind of like lining up who was to stand behind who so that you could end up on the dais in your proper seat. And so he would name names like, uh, he'd yell out uh, Fred, uh, stand behind Cagney. That was Fred Astaire. You know, he'd go, uh, Gregory, stand behind Robert and Natalie. That's Gregory Peck behind Robert Wagner and Natalie Wood. Yeah. And his names, I mean, it was amazing. And uh, I was standing off of the side knowing that oh, Sinatra was going to say, Orlando, get to the back of the line. <laughs> and instead he said, Orlando, follow me, which put me in front of all of these people. And I walked up and I I sat down right behind him, and he was at the podium. And I said, Mr. Sinatra, I said, why am I sitting here? I said, this, this was Kelly Savales' seat. And he said, let me ask you a question. Are you the new kid on this block? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, that's how we treat the new kid on the block. And then all of a sudden, you know, I could see over to my left where Mr. Kelly was sitting, looking at me, trying to figure out who is this. Oh. Dais. I know I was the only strange face on the, on the, on the dais, for him, you know? So it might have been just when Yellow Women was ahead. So I like, probably end up 73. And he's looking at me, and he's like wondering, well, who is this guy? And then Frank introduced me. And, I, and Frank said, would you come on the microphone and tell the story about one wet left foot? And I told the story, and ever since then, Gene was always, would always write to me or call me after a show. It was un- unbelievable, really. Oh, that's very nice. And
0: did you always call Frank Mr.
1: Sinatra? Yeah, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> out of fear of the Mafia? <laughs> of having concrete Out respect and out of, uh, you know, uh, just in case all these perceptions of these stories were true. <laughs> <laughs> he always called me kid, I mean, he would give me a slap on the face and say, hey Kitty, kid, are you behaving yourself? Every time. He was also so wonderful and so sweet and wonderful to me. and. And there was a side to Frank Sinatra that I always saw. I never saw the so-called tough guy mafioso thing. I never really did. I really think I called him Mr. Sinatra
0: hmm. out
1: of respect for him as a talent, the singer he was. But, you know, these, these people, it was no different for me to think I was, here I was, this dreaming. Never kid, never saw high school, went to eighth grade, a grammar school, elementary school education, really. And here I was, not only hanging with these enormous movie stars of their day and legends of their time and and really kind of people that were going to be hard to replace ever again. And at the same time, on the other side of the coin, there I was with all my favorite rock and roll, you know, Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, and there I am hanging with that side of the coin. And so I had this very rich journey Musical and show business journey. When you told your parents as a
0: kid that you wanted to go in the show business, did they say, yeah, right, no chance? Or what was the reaction?
1: You know, their reaction really wasn't one that was, uh, I don't think they ever really believed that, you know, that was ever going to happen. It was just a kid talking. So I don't think they really, my mother was always supportive, but I don't think she really ever realized. Don't forget, it happened to me when I was a kid. I really signed with the I was the first pop recording artist on Epic Records. And you know, of course this now has a history of pop record artists all the way up, you know, to Michael Jackson's King of Pop, and I was very honored by that. And I was only 16, so I signed with Donnie Kirshner really when I was 15. When you signed that contract
0: at such an early age with Epic, what were your own expectations of your career? All
1: I really cared about was being able to go back to the neighborhood and say I real recorded contract. I mean, right. I was more excited about the fact that I was a professional than whether it was going to reach a uh, superstardom or stardom or, or even a hit record. I was just, happy, the happiest news of the day when I signed with Epic was that I was actually signed to a label, a rec- an actual record company, and a, a division of Columbia Records, which of course was king then. And I thought, my God, what an amazing thing. I, I'm a signed recording artist. That was the only badge that meant anything to me. I came into the business when rock and roll was still a baby. I was only five or six years old. And show business in terms of what we call like the nightclub business or the Rat Pack era was in its prime. And I had the opportunity to work with everyone from Jackie Wilson to Jackie Gleason. (laughs) (laughs) And got to work with Sinatra and got to work with Sam Cooke at the same time got to work with Sammy Davis Jr. and then got to work with Jerry Lewis. In fact, Jerry only had three partners on a live performance and that was, of course, Dean, Sammy, and myself because when Sammy passed away, the tour that that he was doing with Jerry, Jerry asked me to fill Sammy's shoes which is an impossibility but I have the honor and pride to say I I was the only other partner in Jerry Lewis's life. Yeah, yeah. And those are the two guys and those two guys were pretty awesome. So I say that with pride to be able to find myself working on the same stage as Sinatra, but at the same time being at a Lori Decay show at the, at the Farmhouse Theater in New York and working with Smokey Robinson, the middle, Miracles, in 1961 in their time. Why do you think you
0: were able to break through when so many other people want to and can't? That is
1: an undefinable, uh, there's no way that I could ever, ever give an answer to that question. There's so many dynamics that can make that happen, one of which is hard work, another is just luck, uh, and another is a a grace of God. I don't really know what the answers are, maybe all of the above. Was it a question of waiting for the right song to come along to, to break you through? Always is, the right song. You know, when you're a recording artist, it comes down to the right song, but there's so many other dynamics. There are a lot of performers who've written and sung and recorded great songs, and the dynamics were not all in place for them. The right producer, the right record company, the right marketing tools, the right moment in time, the right perception of image, uh, how you look at the time and place when you first make your first entrance. Are you within the framework of what is happening at the time? There's so many different dynamics have to take place that there's not not really one. So therefore it's like asking somebody, how did you feel about hitting the lottery for two hundred and fifty million dollars? I mean that's lightning that strikes one but there's no real explanation. The only thing that you can not explain is what you do with it after it happens. You know, after all I started in England in, in nineteen sixty one with Half of the Paradise. That was my first hit song in America and Billy Fury covered it in England. He had the number one hit with it in England. And then I had a record called Bless You that did very well in England. That was Barry Mann and Cynthia Wiles' first hit song as songwriters and my first hit in England. So when I went to England in sixty one, it was you know, two years before the Beatles and England made their great impact on the world musically. So I was in on the on the on the beginning stages of that page that was about to turn, and remember very clearly, I spent so many years in England, and England was so good to me and Tellman and Joyce. I mean, they were the first ones to ever really give us a chance, and we started there before we started in America. Is I mean, that right? I didn't, didn't know that. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Candida and Dawn and that whole wonderful journey began in England for sure. And I remember a guy. Well, I first went to England in 1961. His name was Tito Burns, and Tito Burns was a legendary entrepreneurial agent who used to book rock and roll shows all over the country, and my first tour was with Granada Theaters. It was a joyful tour. So many years I spent doing those as a young kid, 16 years old in 1961, and to this day, I regret not keeping newspapers like Disc and Melody Maker and all these wonderful pictures of being on the road with, with Dusty Springfield when she was with the Springfields and Brother Tommy and, and uh, Bobby V and uh, Clarence Frogman, Henry and Fats Domino and myself. I was 16 years old. On the road doing without a Theater chain. I was told that Yellow Ribbon in '73 in England was the first record that sold a million copies in England uh, at the time. Yeah. I was very proud of that.
0: One uh, thing I read about you said that uh, you, you obviously had
1: uh, a lot of success
0: in the early '60s, and then it looked as if some of the British pop acts were going to
1: wipe you out. Oh, they wiped us out. No, they bother. They wiped us out, but you know, it was a it was that way, the other way around before that happened with the British acts. Yep, remember yep. When, when the American acts would, would, would come to England, uh, the, American, the English acts weren't even able to write their own songs. They were really covering American songs. Mm-hmm. It was, a, it was a, as they say, a touche. Hmm. And the truth is, one of the things I noticed when I came to England in the early 60s, I remember coming back and saying to Carole King, in the studio, I used to say, you know, Carol, something is happening in England that's different than happening in America. Because when you come out of an engagement in England, the first thing you would notice is that if a teenager, well, of course I was a teenager then, right? So you had this whole teenage idol thing going. So when the the kids in England would walk up to you for an autograph, not only would they want to scream and tear at your clothes like teenagers did at that time. But they also were very, very knowledgeable and sophisticated about the music business. They would say things like, "Is Gary Chester going to play drums on your next session? Is Carol King going to write your next song?" And I said, "You know, Carol, in America, all they care about is how you comb your hair and how you and how many hair chests you can show. And over in England, they're talking about the music and the art. There's something going on over there that's different. That's going to deliver." I remember telling Donny Kirshner, There's going to be some very important writing and artistry coming out of England in this business big time soon.
0: On your website, there's a lovely picture of you with Paul McCartney. I love Paul
1: McCartney. Did you know the
0: Beatles when they were together?
1: Um, I I knew the Beatles, uh, all of them individually, separately. It's interesting. I met every Beatle uh, not as a collected group, but as individuals. First, I'll start with Paul. I'm working at the studio doing my television show in England and the phone rings in my office and a voice says, hi, this is Paul McCartney. I thought it was just somebody joking because I, I'm a major McCartney fan. I thought it was somebody just putting me on. And so I started talking like I was a Beatle, trying to do the best Liverpoolian accent I could do, which was terrible, really. <laughs> but it really was Paul McCartney. And he says to me, don't know, Tony, I'm really here. I'm at Wally Hyder's recording studio. Why don't you come over to the studio? Linda and I over here. And I was like... Is really Paul McCartney. So I called Wally Hart. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Paul McCartney in recording today? She's she here right now. I said, I'm on my way. Oh. And I go over, and he was cutting a record called Listen to What the Man Said. Oh, yeah, I know, yeah. And I'm in the studio standing next to Paul while they're overdubbing the sax solo. And I remember Linda was sitting up on the console of the where the window faces the studio, legs crossed in a yoga position and bare feet. And Paul, handsome as ever, with a gentlemanly voice says to Tom Scott, and it was the first take, I think we've got it. And Tom said, no, 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 I was just I was just warming up. And Paul looked at me with a look on his face to say, that was warming up. <laughs> so he goes back to the mic and he says, okay, Tom, let's try it again. Well, 17 takes later, Paul gets back on the mic. He let, he let cause every time he would go to a new take, Tom would say, no, that's not it, I can do better. Finally, about 17 takes that day, he looks at Paul Tom. He puts the mic on. And he goes, "Tom, yeah, Paul. As I said in the first take, I think we got it." But he was gentlemanly enough to let this man play. I learned a big lesson. Until that artist felt he could get everything he got, he really did get it in the first take. And that sound that you hear, that sax solo, that wonderful sax solo, i listened listening to. The man said was a first take. Paul's been always very, very, very wonderful to me and uh, you know he's just one of the great geniuses of our business he really is. I met John one day, remember that picture you see of John where he's wearing what looks like a a diamond Elvis pin on his lapel I see John at the Grammy Awards this is 1973 and we're nominated for Yellow Ribbon and I see John Lennon walking towards me, he's coming right at me and he walks up to me and he goes Tony, we saw you at the Granada Theater and Liverpool or Manchester. I'm not sure if he's in Manchester or Liverpool. And that record, Bless You, we loved it. We used to do it. And we used to think that that song was funky. (laughs) 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 I said, you thought Bless You was funky? He said, yes, at the time it was. And that that was my meeting, my only meeting, and my only hug, gave me a big hug, John Lennon. How did you meet Joyce and Telma? I met Joyce and Telma on a session I was producing Barry Manilow. I had signed and produced his first records. This was 1970, and I was general manager of April Blackwood Music in New York for CBS Music for Clive Davis. I was working for Clive, and I was running the music division there with Neil Anderson uh, from '66 to 1970. Because I left after the British invasion, I quit performing. I went to the behind the scenes because most American artists were not getting played. And so I said, I've got to find a way. I had gotten married young. I was 20 years old and I had gotten married young and I figured, well, I better start going to work. So I went to work in 64 for Robbins Music in New York. And then finally I ended up at, at Ava Blackwood. And so I was producing Barry Manilow and I needed some background singers. But I didn't want to go with the same old, same old sound that was being used to the same girls in New York. So I called a guy named Tony Camillo. Tony Camillo was an arranger who r- arranged uh, records like Sugar Pie, Honey Bunch for the Four Tops.
0: Yeah, lovely song.
1: And uh, Midnight Train to Georgia with uh, Gladys Knight. And he was a friend of mine. And I called him up and I said, I said, listen, I, I I really, I want to put some background voice, but I don't want to use the same voices that everybody uses in New York. Do you know of anybody. He says, As a matter of fact, there's a group called Hot Buttered Soul. They're over at, The Apollo Theater working with Isaac Hayes. Here's the girl's number. Give her a call. And I called Talma Hopkins, who was part of Hot Buttered Soul, who of course became Dawn. They came over and she walked in the room and I couldn't believe how beautiful she was. I said, oh God, this girl is absolutely stunning. And the first thing she said was, "Uh, honey, we don't work for anything but cash. And I said... You got it. I went to the bank. I got the cash, paid them cash full out before they even put their voices on the tracks. They went on in the tracks, and they sang great. They came off, and I said, you know, at that very time, it, it was 70, I had already recorded Candida Knock three times, but I had not started a group yet. I was still an executive at CBS because I didn't think truly when Candida became a hit I thought it was just a one-hit wonder. I wasn't about to leave my job. I I really recorded those songs as a favor to the producers. And in those days, you could do what they called studio groups. And I did it as a favor, never knowing it was going to be a hit. And it became A Million Sellers, so it not three times. So at that point in time, I had already told Clive Davis when I met Telma that I was leaving the company to form a group. Hmm. But I hadn't formed a group yet. And so I said, Telma, I said, you know, I'm forming a group based on this number one record. Would you consider being a, becoming a Dawn? And she said to me, I don't know, I don't know. I said, well, believe it or not, I've already booked a tour in England. She says, I've never been to England. I said, well, would you like to go? She says, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. I'll go to England if I like the music and sing the song, but, I'll, uh, but if after after I go to England, I don't like what I'm doing, I, I, I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, I could quit. I think you're going to have a good time doing this. I said, would you like to come to England? So her lure to be a DAWN member was not to be singing in the group with me or in a number one record. It was because she would already done that with Isaac Hayes. She was on Shaft. She was on half the records done in, in, in Motown, Hurting Through the Grave with Marvin Gaye. So she was used to singing background on records that were number one records, huge records, you know.
0: Why okay, did you choose the
1: name Dawn?
0: And I know that um, Anthony and Orlando are your middle names, right, why did reason, you choose the that? The
1: we did was simple. I didn't want to be the group because I didn't want to lose my job with Clive when the records first came out. So I told the producers, hey, name the group anything but don't call it Tony Orlando because I don't want to lose my job. You know, I did as a favor to help my producer friends pay their rent. Little did I know, I was doing myself a career change, life change favor to me by recording those songs. And so when, when they sold and got their rent money, I thought that was the end of the cases. I didn't think those songs were going to go to number one. So when the records were sold, and I told them not to use my name, they used the name of the head of promotion at the label at the time. His name was Steve Wax. His daughter's name was Lisa dawn oh, i see and as a gesture of of uh good business because they want to make the promotion man happy <laughs> and he could get he's one of those guys that had the legendary thing about him where he, he was the hit maker and uh they did they named him after lisa dawn and lisa dawn wax and uh, that was the birth name of the group dawn now why didn't they go plural why didn't they say the dawns if you go back to that period of time, singular names with singular without a plural S on the end of the word, was very popular. Remember the group called Breads? Those groups were the reasons why because that was like the thing to do, not not the Breads. <laughs> you know. And when I finally left the company and went to Bell, it still remained dawn even when Yellow Ribbon came out. And we were a group now and Telma stayed in the group after that Lind- England trip to England and Orlando and Don until the American television show Tony Orlando and Dawn
0: appeared on CBS. And did you try writing hit songs for yourself and
1: you know for the group? No. Here's the reason. When I signed as a kid with Don Kirshner's office, remember who was there? His office consisted of the following people: Carol King and Jerry Goffin, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, four of the most prolific Songwriters, the business has ever seen since yeah. then. Certainly, wrote everything that you could. You know their songs. Not to tell you what their songs. Yeah, no, absolutely. Carol And a then legend. you have Burt Bacharach and Phil Spector. That, as a young songwriter, was so intimidating to me because most of those people I just named were really classical-trained pianists and Juilliard graduates. Even Neil Sedaka was a Juilliard. So it put an insecurity in me that I decided that I wasn't going to be no writer with them around there. So, I mean, I signed as a writer, but I could not even come close to their ability. So I became their demo singer. I was the guy that they used to do demos for Benny King and the Drifters and because and I was able to kind of like chameleon their voices. And I learned my craft in the studio with them and at the same time was blessed being around these great writers who I learned that it was all about a song anyway. So when Half of the Paradise was cut, Carol King wrote it. Bless You was cut, Barry Mann wrote it. Well, when Candida and Knock Three Times were cut, you know, they already had great songs that they'd written that were hits. Did you really not expect Candida and Knock Three Times to be hits? Could you not spot that they were no, because great they were, records? The reason they were, not I didn't think they were going to be hits, is because those songs, when you look at the charts and where the record business was going, remember something now. I'm at a, I'm working for a publishing company and where... We have with us signed some of the hits that we had was everything from Laura Nero to The Yardbirds. We had James Taylor. We had Blood, Sweat, and Tears. We were going in a totally different direction than a top 40 kind of bubblegummy sound, which is what those records were. And Candida was even an old-sounding drifter's record. It was a copy or a reminiscent of all the drifter's hits of the early 60s. That Carol wrote. And I didn't think that the record business or radio was going to play those kind of records anymore. I thought they were done. So, how did you react when you had your first number one? What did well, you do I was to celebrate? And I, I never told anybody that that was me. I literally lived the secret. The record Candida was number one, and I didn't want to lose my job because I thought that was going to be the only hit record that group would ever have. And mm. then, lo and behold, when we cut knock three times, you know, that was six million singles and two records, but that'll shake up your attention pretty good. Mm. And that's when I realized, you know, this is a chance for me to fulfill the dream I've had success. I'm a kid. I mean, how do you fight that? You know, the public is always the first ones to know.
0: And what about your parents? Did you do some sort of Elvis style gesture and reward them with a house or a car or something?
1: Well, I did later on, not not yet then, because of course there wasn't enough money to be made on those days. I mean, in the '60s, when you had a hit record, you spent most of your time doing what we used to call free sock hops to make the this this jockey's happy, and so you you never really made any money. I mean, I didn't make any royalty money out of those because everything they took out out of those records paid for the session and paid for the tours and paid for the airfares, and it was not you know it was, it was all recoupable for them. Did never you f- saw any money? When did you first live in a luxurious situation? I didn't do that until uh, the the 70s with Thelma and Joyce and I, after the TV show and after Yellow Ribbon, and then we started to begin. And even then, you know, when I look at what we could have made up, we would have had the same run of hit records as we have then now. The difference is about $50 million. (laughs) I mean, I mean, really, when I think back to what we were earning back then, don't get me wrong, for the dollar value, we, we were doing very well, but nothing compared to what the record business did after uh, the Bee Gees and Saturday Night Live and the album business became the album business that we all began to know that they were selling platinum albums and sales were, and the deals that the, the lawyers were making for artists were astronomical. No, we, we never saw those kind of dollars. But when I did, I did buy my mother a house.
0: But But what about when you first heard Ty a Ribbon or saw
1: the lyrics or whatever? Did you go, wow, now this one is special? Yes, you know, it's a funny thing. I didn't want to record the song. You know, I didn't want to be a -a bumblegum singer. I didn't want to cut clever little lyrics like Knock Three Times. I wanted to be Vanilla Fudge. I wanted people to stop saying I was a -a bubblegum singer, so everything that was cute or or interesting, or, or that didn't have the the, the same kind of a, a lyrical context of what was happening in progressive rock or, or rhythm and blues, I didn't even want to cut it. So I was trying to duck it because I said, you know, I used to say to Hank Medras and Dave Apple, who produced those records, say, you know, Thelma Hopkins and Joyce Vincent Wilson, you know, we're not using them properly. My goodness, you know, it was Marvin Gaye and Dawn when Marvin did heard it through the grapevine. Those are the girls that you hear on that record. Sure. It's the Four Tops and Dawn when you hear Bernadette and Reach Out. Those are the same girls you hear on that record. It's it's Isaac Hayes and Dawn on Shaft. Those are the girls that you hear on that record. And it's not fair that we don't show that rhythm and blues side to the group. And so I was trying not to cut it. So I, I called up Bobby Vinton. I said, Bobby, i got a great song for you. I said, you've had hit records with colors. Roses Are Red, Blue Velvet, Blue on blue, I said. You don't have yellow in your repertoire. I said. Listen to this song. I played him the song, and he says to me, "It's the corniest song I ever heard." And he turned it down. So I found myself knowing that I was a pretty good song man, I knew the song was well written, and I knew the song had had the potential to be the hit. I just didn't want to sing that kind of song. But it wouldn't let me alone. I mean, the, the, the chorus of Ty Yellow Ribbon would not let me alone. I'd get up in the morning. I'd be to Ty, I yell. So I'd be like, oh, Ty, I It would not leave me alone. So I said to myself, well, I've got an idea. So I called the producers and I said, listen, I found a song called Freedom for the Stallion that was written by Alan Toussaint out of New Orleans. I said, if you let me cut Freedom for the Stallion in the album, I'll cut Yellow Ribbon. They said, no problem. I said, because I think Yellow Ribbon is a hit. I mean, I've been living with this yeah. thing now for two months and I can't stop singing it. But I want you guys to allow me and Joyce to experiment and tell them to experiment on the show a little bit more other side to our, our ability in the album. And that's what I did. I used it as a deal maker <laughs> with the producers who wanted me to sing it so badly. And they were right. And they were always right. And that's one of the reasons why I didn't go in and try to write songs to get publishing rights or make money. Because I knew I had a team of producers and writers who had a real handle on us, no differently than Bert Bacharach had a handle on Beyond Warwick and Holland Dozier and Holland had a, yeah. a handle on Diana Ross.
0: I realize that you didn't write Tire Yellow Ribbon, but why was it written? What was the
1: reason for the lyrics? You know, it was funny. I was watching Paul McCartney being interviewed by Geraldo Rivera, of all people, many years ago, and Geraldo said, uh, What's one of your favorite songs? And Paul said, I love Ty Yellow Ribbon. And he went, You do? And Paul said, yeah, I think it's one of the most well-written songs ever written. I remember that being a big compliment to those writers. They were so proud that Paul felt that way because they had such respect for Paul's ability. And Paul understood that that lyric had an amazing structure to it. I mean, it really is a movie within a three-minute song. The way I understand it is that there was an article that the boys had read that talked about a prisoner in Jacksonville, Florida coming home to yellow hankies. And the, the idea that the wife, if you want me home, put a yellow handkerchief out of the door. And if you don't if you want me home, don't. And I'll drive by. If the hanky is out there, I'll know I'm wanted. If it's not, I'll continue to drive. So they just tipped that fable and they wrote the song. And instead of making it a handkerchief, it was a easier, nicer thing to say, ribbons, Yeah, easier, yeah. much more sing melodic word, and they went to the yellow ribbons instead of the yellow handkerchief.
0: Did the song start people using ribbons?
1: It did indeed. You know, I first sang that song to the public at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas with Bob Hope, who called me and asked me to come with Talman Joyce to sing Yellow Ribbon to welcome home the POWs in Vietnam. And was 580-plus men from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. And they were sitting on the 50-yard line at this football stadium. 70,000 people there. And Bob introduced us, and we opened the show, A List of Stars, Long as Your Body. And we went out, and we opened the song, and in the middle of the chorus, these prisoners of war stood up on the 50-yard line and sang it like it was some military song. Walking towards the stage, and it was at that point in time that I realized when the show was over, there was a major Stephen Long who came to me and said, you know, my mother and my father tied a yellow ribbon around the oak tree in my home to welcome me home. Well, the press didn't run with the story yet, and it hadn't reached the public awareness yet. It was only among those 580, but there was a buzz about it among people, you know, that it happened. Then in 1980, when the Iranian hostage crisis happened, 444 days came to an end. There was a woman named Penny Langdon, Bruce Langdon's wife, who he was one of the hostages being held. She said, I'm tying this ribbon around my tree and mailbox until my husband, Bruce, comes home. The press ran with the story, and when it was printed, the country followed suit by doing the same for those prisoners as a symbol of hope for 444 days America was tying yellow ribbons on trees and uh, front porches and car antennas and it became a symbol of hope and homecoming and freedom it sustained itself since 1973 and as we sit here speaking you can go to any small uh, area in this country any small town and you will see yellow ribbons being tied for Uh, as a show of support of our troops in Iraq. Also, it's used very often for kidnappings. Uh, Lacey Peterson's uh, mom, when uh, her daughter was, I don't know if that story is at all uh, uh, reported in England, but there's a story of a kidnapping and a murder of a young girl named Lacey Peterson. And her mother, like so many kidnapped people uh, of families, they'll wear a yellow ribbon as a symbol of hope for their return. So it's taken on a double entendre. But indeed, the Library of Congress has deemed at the beginning, they did a real historical search on it because they were inundated with requests on where did this yellow ribbon begin. A lot of people thought it started with a John Wayne movie called She Wore Yellow Ribbon. It did not. It really did begin with the POWs in 73, but it really became a national thing during from the song uh, and used as uh, Penny Langdon's s- symbolic gesture based on the song for her husband Bruce Langdon in the uh, Iranian hostage crisis
0: So every time there's been any kind of a situation or a conflict presumably you've had requests from all sorts of different people to uh, perform the song. Yes but i
1: never ever went out of my way to exploit that. As a matter of fact I went the other way. When the hostages came home i got a call from then general haig who was of course secretary of state for ronald reagan and was asked if i could come to the airport to welcome the hostages home and i remember clearly saying to him i would feel uncomfortable doing so although i'm honored that the president wants me there to do this i said because i it would feel people would think i was being exploitive you know there i would be standing there with these people who have suffered for 440 days singing this song, I just didn't feel right. I just didn't think people would ever see it as anything but a publicity stunt. So he graciously and wonderfully understood, and in fact, President Reagan even let me know when I finally met him, that he, he kind of looked at me and went, you know, I want to tell you something, that was the right thing to do. And he said, we used the Marine Band, the Air Force Band, to welcome him home. And he said, I want to thank you for that. Oh, that's nice. uh, there wasn't a selfishness there. And, I, and I've and i always maintain, I've always kept it a low profile, because really you know, the guys that deserve the credit for that are the guys that wrote it. I was just the mailman. All I did was deliver the letter. Have you found
0: armed forces or whatever have sort of um, asked you to be their patron? or Well, you I've have a special be, I honor? have
1: because of the song, and because I've become very close to much of the military since 1973, starting with those POWs who I've reunioned with for 30 years now, and may remain friends with to this day most of those POWs. I have a healthy respect for men and women who put their life on the line for their country. And so, for 30 years, I have, in my own way, worked very hard to to work for veterans and veterans' causes. And so, what I've done is, uh, in 1993, for instance, and there was there was post Desert Storm, and there was no Iraq, so it wasn't in a time of war, or there was uh, nothing going on, I had a theater in Branson, Missouri, and I felt, well, here's a 2,000-seat theater. I can I can do something. I can put on a show every year and show my thanks to veterans by having them come free on, on November 11th. Which here is a Veterans Day and where people recognize our veterans, and, and it has been historically a day to do that. And so on November 11th, every year at my theater, I would do a free show for veterans. No question, they asked coming many many members of your family you want and I would write a special show for them well the show the first year I did it did, uh, came 600 people and in, last year we had 184,000 veterans come to Branson it's now the largest gathering of uh, veterans men and women who serve in the military and to come in reunion and, and gather on Veterans Day and we celebrated in Branson by giving them the red carpet treatment and, the, and a thankful heartfelt thanks for what they've done
0: would you agree that Tire Yellow Ribbon basically opened doors for you like nothing else in your career, had the biggest impact on your career? Well, the biggest selling song I ever had
1: in my life was Knock Three Times. Right. It sold more records than Yellow Ribbon. But the greatest impact I've ever had was Yellow Ribbon, no doubt. And it's the, it's the signature song to my career, and I'm proud to say that, but it is. It, it, it has been, and... This is a song that has taken on a lot of different meanings. You know, I mean, this is a record that now has become a, a story in itself, aside from who recorded it and who wrote it. By the way, Tying Yellow Women's is not just a, something that they do just in America. It's done in England also, yeah. and it's also done in the Philippines, and it's done in a lot of different countries. I mean, when the president uh, of the Philippines, when she became president... Her husband was held hostage and killed as you know and she succeeded his presidency and ran for presidency and uh, her theme song was yellow yellow ribbon, and she wore yellow at, at her inaugural and it's always been a, a very important part of Philippine uh, tradition and uh, for a different reason but uh, for a different person but for the same reason as a, a symbol of hope and hope coming. Same in England. I mean in England now, I've gotten many people who have written to me about yellow ribbons and how it's used in England so I'm when I tell you that that, that song has a, a pair of legs to it that is unusual for a song to take on, you know, we've all had hit records mm. and hit songs, but that one, boy, that one wears a different suit
0: tally. Yeah. These days, when an artist breaks through, they're sort of advised very heavily on how they look, their image, and so on. Were you ever told how to
1: look, or did you just have your own look? No, I was told how to look, sure. That- I was always told I was too chubby. You know, I had a weight problem, so I always had to fight weight all the time. So most people complained about my weight as a problem, you know. And even as a kid, I remember when I first signed with Columbia Records, I was 216 pounds, 16-year-old. And the, the art department then, if you look at the early pictures on the first Tony Orlando, Halfway to Paradise album sleeve, or where I'm standing there with a white sweater on, you can literally see how the body was cut down with a razor blade. I mean, because there was no such thing as airbrushing back then. You know, that was the only way. But nobody's ever told me to, you know, wear my hair a certain way or or wear this clothing. That all came just instinctively out of whatever I wanted to do.
0: Because with all respect, in the 70s, you had a very classic 70s look with the sort of long, wavy, dark hair and the the droopy
1: moustache. Well, I got that from the Beatles. Yeah, I took that from when the boys were wearing that, when George and Paul were wearing the moustache and long hair for after the Maharishi days. God, did you tell them that? <laughs> oh, sure. What did they say? Why did you keep yours? <laughs> but you've, you've kept your mustache ever since, haven't you? Yeah. I've taken it off of films, and I I, I just I just can't, I don't feel comfortable without it. But, yeah, I, I, the first time I actually really thought about doing was when I saw Mark Spitz win the seven Olympic medals, and he had a mustache, but it was really, truly, it was the Let It Be album, and... Paul, and I was trying to copy their hair and mustache. I was okay. definitely trying to do a Beatles thing. I did a movie, a TV movie here called The Rosemary Clooney Story, in which yeah. I played Jose Ferrer, the actor, her husband. I, I took the mustache off, and so I was working live performances, and to my amazement, you know, I never really got like, a, ooh, wow, ooh, nothing like that, but I, I, I didn't feel comfortable. It was funny, it just became mm. part of me. It's kind of your trademark, almost, isn't it? I think it is, but... I'm More than that, I just never felt comfortable
0: without it. I tried. You mentioned earlier that uh, you'd met Elvis Presley, and of course he also is very popular here. Have you got any nice story about meeting Elvis? When
1: I first did Halfway to Paradise, I get this note in the mail from Elvis Presley telling me that he loved the song, that he sings the song, and that he put it on his jukebox. And in the midst of my divorce in 83 a lot of my memorabilia and stuff got lost in the moving out of the house and stuff and i was sick over the fact that i never could find that note it'll probably turn up on ebay sometime ah uh, yeah i hope because i'm buying it and, <laughs> and I, I remember just the other day i was talking to red and and red said yeah absolutely he said not only did he love that record but when we used to go stay in palm springs he would put that record on the jukebox in palm springs and he would sing that song over and over and over, and I said, so well, thank God I got it from somebody who was right there. And I became very close to the Colonel Parker when Colonel was alive, and, and the Colonel also did. And then finally, I had met Elvis at the Hilton in the 70s. When I signed with the Hilton, he was at the Hilton also. And I went at the same hotel as, as Elvis, and I and I went to uh, to meet him. And I went backstage, and lo and behold, he looked at me, and he said, did she ever get my note? <laughs> but I never got an answer. I said, I didn't know where to send an answer to. So that's kind of a pleasant time. And, and I found Elvis to be a real gentleman. I mean, I was working the lounge at the Hilton when I first started at the Hilton. The lounge at the Hilton was a 600-seat room. And Kenny Rogers and I used to stagger the shows. So I would do a 9 o'clock, then he would do 10. Then I would do 11, then he would do 12. Then he would do, you know, so on. Until 6 in the morning, we used to do 6 and 7 shows a day. And Elvis was working in the main room. And I remember that he had heard that one night I had one person in the audience, one person, and I did the show. And I guess he felt sorry for me, because we were just starting out, the girls and I. We hadn't even cut yellow ribbon yet, so we went yeah. three times. All of a sudden, the next night I go on stage, I hear the audience scream, and I sense this person go by wearing white. I saw white go by. And I turn around and it's Elvis made yeah. a quick walk across from stage right to stage left <laughs> knowing full well that the word was going to get out that he did a walk on and that he would help me draw people and what he didn't know was that in that lounge there was no stage left That so once he made the walk from stage right to stage left he was going to end up in a bar <laughs> 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 and I knew he was stuck I finally said I dare you to come back Came back and he took that dramatic karate pose that he would do, stood in the middle of the stage, and then just blew a kiss to the audience and left. Well, the word got out that Elvis was doing walk ons, he would show up on my show. From then on, we never had anything but a sold out <laughs> house. Thank you, Elvis. Yep any pop star's
0: time at the top of you know being in the charts and having hit records is remarkably short. Right. Um, do you think you realized that at the time, or when the hits dried up,
1: you, you found it difficult to cope with? No, because my dream has never been about a hit record. My dream has always been about years in the business. I always respected guys like George Burns and, and Sinatra and... Dean Martin and Elvis and I mean guys who were in the business a long time. My goal was never to talk about being in show business for a hit record. It was always about longevity. And so if I was working bowling alleys tomorrow versus working and headline and still in Vegas or Atlantic City or or wherever I work, I would still be doing this. I'm an entertainer, I've been an entertainer since I'm sixteen, I'm sixty now. It's my life's work. And what I do on that stage is not based on heat, or hot, or... or uh, it's based upon a great show that night. And giving that audience everything I own. Whatever but, God blessed me with, whatever I got in my health, their ability to put on a great show. It must be amazing that,
0: you know, even all these years on, anywhere in the world, you, could, you just have to sing the first line of Tie a Ribbon or... And, and, and ev- everybody, whatever age. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's an incredible achievement, isn't it? It is. It truly
1: is. And a proud one, believe me when I tell you. Very proud of it.
0: But does it bother you that people still want you to sing songs from way
1: back when? No, that's my job. I don't understand what people say. I don't want to do that because I want to show I've grown. But well, were you grown from what? How could you ignore what your roots are? Former does not do the songs that made them famous to the public, I think it's an insult to the public.
0: Every day, you must have people coming up to you saying how much your work means to them.
1: Sometimes they do, and sometimes they walk up to me and say, you know that I met my wife, and every time I would knock on that ceiling three times, she'd knock three times, twice in the pipe, <laughs> and we lived in the apartment <laughs> building, and so on so and so I mean, you have no idea. You know that my wife, uh, we sang uh, uh, "What Do You Do on Sunday." Uh, we got married on Sunday because do you know that we named our daughter Candida because of Candida? I mean, come on! Every song I've ever had a hit record with, somebody has a story to tell.
0: <laughs> it's now, amazing. Most people would probably imagine that the 70s were the best time in your life because that's when you had your hits. But what is the truth? Well,
1: that's not true because, you see, when you're having the hits and when you're having all that go on, you are so involved in working and, because what comes with hits is an amazing amount of work. But people don't realize you have no connection with the joy of what's going on while it's going on. You only can enjoy it in most cases that I've seen, not only in my own case, but other people in a retrospective state of mind. You only enjoy what happened to you in a decade like the '70s that happened to me when I look back on it. Mm-hmm. During the time I was doing, I was working so hard I couldn't even think straight. Have you got any nice stories of meeting the, when you met the royal family? Right. Just the nervousness of meeting them, and you know, I remember something when I met them was in the '70s, and so it yeah, was. It's an awesome experience to be with the royals and to be at the palaces, and to—I to, mean, for a kid like me growing up, to this day, if I, I mean, if I if I met tomorrow any of the royal family, I would still be shaking in my boots. You met all the presidents. Have you got any nice story of going to the White House to meet well, any of them? Ford was certainly, uh, at the White House, President Ford was, uh, when he was in 76, remember, I was in my prime then. So the relationship with him was was one that was developed and and be, still continues to be a friendship. I, I continued and value my friendship with the, with President and Mrs. Ford. They are two eloquent and beautiful people and, you know, my days at the White House with them were are fixed in my memory forever. and But more importantly, my friendship with them has been le- everlasting, it's been 30 years now, and I'm very proud of my relationship with them. Do you think you've been
0: given the credit you deserve as an entertainer? Oh, sure, I, and more than I
1: deserve. What, do you, what would you think is the, the greatest tribute you've been paid? That people still come to see and pay to see me. I mean, the forget factor in our business is about a week. You know, this is 43 years for me. And to think that people still pay to buy a ticket to come see me and walk out happy with what they've gotten and write to me and tell me that, that I, I meant something to them that night or that I made them forget their problems or I, I served up my job well. My God, that's enough for me. I mean, my, my review has always been written by my audience. I've never gone by a review by a journalist. I've always gone by whatever happened at the end of the show. If they're standing at the end of the show... It doesn't matter what anybody says.
0: Do you mind the fact that, you know, although you've done a heck of a lot in in your long career, that most people still will always remember
1: you for one particular song? Well, I think they also remember me as a person. I think I've delivered one thing to people, is that there's a good person here, and that I wouldn't hurt anybody, that I was a, a decent man during this journey. And whether it be one song or five songs, more importantly, that there's a respect that I've been a good human being is what I'm what I'm most interested in. And I think I've received that. I, I don't think people think of me as a bad guy. I never dreamed other than the dream I've lived. And if it's one song or one movie, yeah. if one performer gives one performance, or one hit record, or delivers one movie, or one line in a movie, or one joke that's never forgotten. You've done your job. Do you, you know, have any ambitions left? I got in this to be in this as long as George Burns. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so God willing, if I stay healthy, maybe I'll make it. If not, I should give it one heck of a try. You know what I'd love to do? I'd love to go back to England with Telma and Joyce. The same way we went back when we first began. That's what I'd love to do. I mean, if there was really a tour and a place to go, and work and where we could really do business for somebody. I don't know what that scene is like over there anymore. I would love that because you know here I'm never off the road, but I do miss England. I do miss it very much because it all began in England. That's where I. When Tom and I enjoy talk about doing a reunion tour, which we've not done. So if we ever do it, let's just go back to where we started. You know, our first engagement ever. I'll never forget it. Was Top of the Pops. I was just overwhelmed by the reaction that they gave us. It was an amazing time for us, you know, three really young kids, and we were being accepted so beautifully in England, and you know how it was back then you come out of that Top of the Pops backstage area and you have all those kids waiting for autographs, and you get into a beautiful Rolls Royce that the, the agents would supply for you. You really felt like uh, you'd made it, and you'd made it big time. I mean, it was like a dream, really, you know. I've just turned 60 years old and I still remember those days with with an amazing fascination and and feeling of joy, I mean I look back on such a great time we had.
0: So at the moment you're doing concerts in America as a solo artist? I haven't stopped working since 1961.
1: I think, thank God, that the hard work has paid off.
0: And have you got any other projects
1: other than the usual concerts as it were? Well, you know, I did a movie last year with Billy Bob Thornton called Wake It Up in Reno and Shelly's Theron, yeah. a cameo performance, mm-hmm. but it was a, a wonderful chance to be with them. I was on Broadway in Smokey Jones Cafe, and uh, it was my second time to Broadway, the first time I was in Barnum on Broadway. By the way, I showed up did very well in England. Yeah, I did, with Michael Crawford, with yeah. Michael, yeah, and I did it in uh, in on Broadway. In uh, fact, Michael and I learned how to walk the tightrope together at the... Uh, Big Apple Circus in New York City. Stacy Keats. I'll never forget it. And uh, wrote a book, just wrote a book called uh, Half of the Paradise, which is an autobiographical uh, Did very well for me here in the States. Complete an amazing journey.
0: When you were writing your book, did you sort of realize more than ever the
1: amazing achievement of your life coming from well, a New had, York slum? Had, well, I began to realize that as I was in a very fortunate situation in which. With only the lack of education, you know, I worked for six presidents of the United States. I worked in your country for for many of the royal, royalties, and and uh, I remember doing the Palladium on Sunday nights. You know, 17 years old, I, I was doing Sunday night at the Palladium. I, you know, my feet have walked the streets of London, and my feet have walked the streets of Pompeii. Uh, I've tasted the foods of 37 different cultures. I've worked for presidents. I've met every single superstar I ever wanted to meet and work with them. And I've had an amazing relationship with audiences around the world, so I really should have no complaint at all about anything.